the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So today is, as we should now be well aware, the Sunday of Orthodoxy, or as its fuller name goes, the Sunday of the Triumph of Orthodoxy. It's an interesting title to have, uh, and it's one which I confess it's difficult to feel at some times, like Orthodoxy is triumphant. I don't feel very triumphant right now. Hopefully, most of us aren't feeling particularly triumphant after the first week of fasting. The, the, the hardest six weeks of Lent are the first week. Right? This, is, this is always how it is. It's, it's just, it's rough. So the church, in its wisdom and its kindness, gives us a bit of a treat today. We get a procession. We get a joyous recollection. We get something to be excited about, to give us a little bit of energy to propel us forward through that next week of Great Lent, until we can come to the Sunday of Gregory Palamas and get a little bit more, and then the cross, and a little bit more, and so on, all the way through Holy Week to our Lord's resurrection on Easter, Pascha. I want to think a little bit today about what it means to celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy, because it is not the triumph of being orthodox. It is not the Sunday of, oh, look, we got it right, aren't we great? There is no such Sunday, thank God. But this Sunday, I have often in my own life confused the triumph of orthodoxy of our faith with the triumph of me by virtue of being part of this church. That I have thought, well, perhaps this is about how great I'm a part of this faith, so perhaps I'm pretty great too. But that's not what it's about. And I want to look at the icons to think a bit more about what it means to have a triumph of orthodoxy rather than a triumph of being orthodox. Although hopefully, by God's grace, we will, by being orthodox, struggle and fail our way into the fullness of our faith. So what is it that is triumphed today? Well, we heard in the reading from the Synexarion before communion that on this Sunday, in the year 842 or 843, uh, icons were restored to the churches by the Empress Theodora after they had been for a second time, not just once, but like it's like once wasn't bad enough, we got rid of them twice. It's like the emperors just didn't learn their lesson. But finally in 842, icons are restored finally, completely, and they never go away since. But along the way, we had the opportunity to do some good with the misery of the years of iconoclasm that lasted from 726 to 787 and again from 812 to 843. And what we did was come up with a theology of the icon. A theology which says more than that these are good teaching aids or useful for those who cannot read. They are those things, and it is helpful for our attention to have icons in the church, but there is much, much more to them than that. What the icons show us is this faith that we just proclaimed. It is this faith which has established the universe, which is the common possession of the church from before the time when Christ was born of Mary until now. As the prophets beheld, as the teachers have dogmatized, as the church has kept firm, what is it that we're holding to in icons? Well, It's a simple fact that on the one hand has upended the universe and on the other hand has reestablished it. It is the simple fact that God became human 
so that humans might become God. This is what St. Athanasius the Great tells us in his On the Incarnation, written 400 years before this triumph of orthodoxy. God became human that humans might become God. That is our faith. Now, the ramifications of this, the consequences, and the details are staggering. Because the human that God became is a frail, sick, suffering, and in all of our cases, sinful and dying human. And what it means for a human to become God is to cross a boundary that we thought was impossible, to live a life not marked by our mortality, our vulnerability, our pettiness, our greed, our sinfulness. It has, Christ upended the world and the order of the world, everything that we take for granted and that probably all too often I at least still take for granted. Like, this is just how things work. I got to get mine. I got to get by. This world of politics and wars and ugliness, we just take it for granted like that's how things are. But the Incarnation says, no, that is not how things are. That is not how they were meant to be. That is not how they should be. And that is not how they will be. Because when God becomes human and takes our life to his, he transforms our lives. The mortal becomes immortal. The corruptible, incorruptible. That which is defined by slavery to the passions is now defined by freedom from passion. If we are distracted, we become focused. We become beings as we were meant to be, able to love God and our neighbor as ourselves, to fulfill those commandments which are otherwise impossible to us. That is what the incarnation does. That is what we are looking forward to in the resurrection of our Lord, his triumph not just over the physical fact of death, but over this whole mode of existence that we mistakenly call life. And that's why we've got to have icons. Because, you see, an icon depicts for us the God who became human and the humans who have become divine. The icons show us Christ and his mother and his saints. As St. John of Damascus says, you would not let us show the king without his army. Well, here they are, all around us, but a very different kind of army than we're used to, an army not of war, but of peace, an army not of violence, but of love, an army that has been made by being deified through Christ. And how have they been deified? Well, they did what Christ did. They died. They died to themselves They died at the hands of persecutors. They died through the slow death of asceticism. They died through day by day trying to be a little less of that selfish person that Christ died for to become the person that Christ is. Something they can only have done by the grace of God. But that's why we've got to have icons. We surround ourselves with icons to remind ourselves that the way we see the world most of the time is wrong. And that what we see on the surface is not what is really the case. That what is in these pictures, which looks curiously unnatural, unlike how we see people in daily life, that's the reality of things. These 
are those people who have seen God, who in renouncing themselves have taken to themselves the life of Christ, who have done what we're supposed to be trying to do during Lent, theoretically all year, but mainly during Lent. And that's why we've got to have icons. But there's another reason we've got to have icons. See, the front of the icon is beautiful. It has the saint on it. It has Christ on it. It has the Theotokos on it. And it's covered in gold. And we like to say that the distance between earth and heaven is no thicker than the gold on an icon. Ah, beautiful. But you ever look at the back of an icon? What's on the back of an icon? It's just wood. It's stuff. It's dirt. Trees, after all, take in their nutrients from the soil. When we cut down the tree and make the wood for the icon out of it, we've just got processed dirt. The stuff we use to make the inks is also processed dirt. Some of it is processed chicken or insect. I don't know if you prefer that to dirt. I'm not sure I do. It's stuff. It's the same stuff that you and I are made out of. It is this stuff. It is vulnerable, and it is weak, and it is dying. We have to have icons because on the one hand, they show us what we are called to be, and on the other, they remind us what we are. They leave us no place for self-congratulation. I am no better than those depicted in the icons, and I am no better really than the icon itself. I don't get to go around going, I got this, I'm orthodox. Might want to sometimes. Might want to be like, oh, those folks, they don't get it. They're not orthodox. They don't have icons. When what I should be doing is either contemplating the front of the icon, who I am called to be, or the back of it, which is what I am made from. That indeed is the scandal of the incarnation. If the purpose of Christ becoming human is to transform our lives, he only does it by living our lives in all their messiness, getting hungry, being tired, dying. And in fact, in the gospel we hear today, we hear the real scandal of orthodoxy. When Philip goes, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel goes, really? He's like, yeah, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, I'm sorry, what now? Now, that doesn't sound right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've been racking my brain trying to think of a sufficiently awful town uh, to compare. But I've only been in Australia about five years, and I just kind of like everywhere so far. Um, I got plenty of towns in Texas I could think of, Um, and it always makes sense. You pick the the rival college football town, and you say, that's where Jesus was from. So I guess um, Brisbane? I don't know. It's a lousy place. Whatever it is, imagine just a lousy place where nothing good happens, and it's never produced anything great, and they're like, this is where God came. This is where God decided to meet earth, right there, in the armpit of Israel. But see, that's what we're up against. That's what we have to confront. That's the reality of our lives. We're all, in a sense, from the armpit of Israel. We're all just the same dirt. We're all the same stuff as the icons. And so as we contemplate them, on the one hand, we look to where we are going with God's help and only with God's help. But we remember where we are coming from and what and who we are. And so that's why I want to differentiate between this being the Sunday of orthodoxy, of the fullness of the faith, of a hope of being deified in Christ, and not being the Sunday of being orthodox 
as though just by virtue of being here, we are something other than the same dirt as everyone else. When Abraham spoke with God, he confessed, I am but earth and ashes. So should we all say. The Sunday of Orthodoxy is a reminder of how great we are called to be and how little we really are. And in between the two, how much God loves every last one of us and every last one of those that we don't think are us. Because it's not the Sunday of defining the line about who is in and who is out, who gets to be right and who gets to be wrong, who gets to define where the center of power is and who doesn't, because we're all away from that. It's a Sunday of being reminded that none of us are yet the people in the icons. But we need to keep moving toward that. And so it's a bit of a warning and an admonition not to put our trust in anything that appears, not to rely on those structures or people that claim to offer us security by any other means than the grace of God, which will not feel secure until we are dead and judged. It is a reminder that the people who broke the icons were our God-loving emperors, who, out of fear of the Muslims and for the sake of reconstituting their empire, destroyed the churches, killed monks, and called forth from the faithful a response of conscience, which looked to the icons to remind them of their humility and their shared hope of salvation. And so with that, we can say that this is the faith of the apostles, this the faith of the fathers, this the faith of the orthodox, this the faith which has at once upended and established the universe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Glory of martyrs true.